while I was sprinting the last five miles of that day, I was saying things to myself like, remember Neil? That's my buddy who died. It should have been you that died out there. Earn this life. Suck it up. If you quit now, you deserve a coward's death. There are people suffering all around you. Liberia has been through a civil war, Ebola, poverty. You know, So people are suffering all around you. Suck it up. Earn this life. And saying these very dark things to myself, those five miles I ran were the fastest five miles I ran the entire trip. Now, I didn't talk to myself like that the whole time, but because I went there, I was able to access it and use the darkness as a force for good, as a force for power. But I also play on the edge of light, right? Like I'm also, you know, constantly grateful, incredible gratitude for life, finding the bliss, finding the beauty, seeing little things to appreciate in every single moment. But you have to play on those edges. Hey there, my friends, it's Dr. Anthony Balduzzi, and I want to welcome you back to another episode here on the Fit Father Project and the Fit Mother Project podcast. Today, we're joined by special guest Akshay Nanavati, who I got to say is one of my dear, close, personal friends, and also one of the craziest guys that I know. And I think at the end of this conversation, you will also see that he's crazy, but he's crazy in the right kind of way. He's crazy in the kind of way that inspires and pushes all of us to look at what our limitations are, look at our fears, and push the boundaries in in the service of our own self-discovery, but also to our greater human family and showing that there's so much more possible for our lives. And all of that, what I just said, is going to make a lot of sense when you get to hear Akshay's story. I want to give you a little bit of his background in terms of just a basic bio. He's a United States Marine veteran. He's a speaker, an entrepreneur, an ultra runner, and an Arctic explorer. And he served in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And when he came back, he was later diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And through a process of his own deep darkness and consequently his healing afterwards, he was able to create a philosophy called Firvana. And he actually wrote a book called with the same name, Firvana, that was eventually uh, endorsed by the Dalai Lama, Jack Canfield. And effectively, Akshay is going to share his process of taking some of our deepest, darkest aspects and experiences and use that as both fuel and as wisdom to be able to go into fear, to be able to embrace those painful, dark areas of our lives that many people want to wall off or pretend aren't there. But Akshay's thesis is basically, that's where the greatest stuff is. And he's right now coming on the podcast to discuss his life philosophy and what we can really learn from that. But also his latest upcoming adventure is he is planning on doing a solo crossing of Antarctica over the 2024-2025 season. And what this actually means, and Akshay will explain it, is he's effectively going to be skiing with a 400-pound sled over 100 days in a row for roughly 12 hours a day. So just just think about that for a second. Cross-country skis, 400-pound sled, all of his food, all of his gear, and he would be the first human in existence to do this solo Antarctica crossing by just man-powered. So Akshay, welcome to the show. We're excited to hear about your philosophies, your mission, your vision, and I know we're going to take something away from how you approach your life. Thank you, brother. Honored to be here. All right. Well, um, you're no stranger to interviews, you know. I, 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 and I, I'm interested in how we're even going to start here. I want everyone again to really know that Akshay and I go back deep. Like we've been very close friends for a number of years, mm-hmm. um, and I've actually had the privilege of doing some advising, at least on the nutrition side of things. 
uh, as it relates to your training to try to cross Antarctica. I want to keep our Antarctica discussion to be like the middle and back third. It's absolutely fascinating. We're going to get into the details of what it takes to train and execute something like that. that. But I think it's probably best that people get to know what Fearvana is, your origin story of how this kind of came through and in, in yep. whatever depth you'd like to share and and the ethos of, of what you're all about. Yeah. You know, fear, so the journey to leading up to Fearvana began, I was born in India, moved from India to Singapore to Austin, Texas at the age of 13. Very quickly after moving here, got heavily into drugs, into alcohol, used to cut myself, burn myself, still have these scars on my body. Lost two friends to addiction, they OD'd, and I was going down that path myself until one day when I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. And watching that movie, specifically that scene where Medal of Honor recipients Gary Gordon and Randy Sugart volunteered to go on the ground to set up a defensive perimeter to protect the second Black Hawk. And the guy they died protecting, Michael Duran, is still alive today because of what they did. And they received the Medal of Honor posthumously for for their actions. And that triggered something in me. I mean, I was living a worthless, selfish, purposeless existence at the time. And just that level of courage, self-sacrifice, compassion. And so almost overnight, I stopped doing drugs, read the book Black Hawk Down, and decided to join the military and the Marines. It took me a year and a half to get in because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. But I fought my way in, and the Marines is where, really looking back, that's where the, the essence of Fearvana was born. Because in the Marines, I learned how to suffer. I learned how to suffer beautifully. I learned how to face adversity. I learned how to live for something greater than myself. You know, in the Marines, nobody gives a shit about your well-being. What matters is your men and the mission. And it's profoundly beautiful, while miserable at times, but beautiful to live in that kind of world. So after joining the Marines, I started exploring the depths further and further to see where I could go on this journey to expanding the human potential within myself and ultimately exploring the the aspects of the human soul. So I got into every sport you could think of, like mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving. I was terrified of all of it, so I wanted to play on those edges. Until 2007, when I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry Marine. And one of my jobs out there was to walk in front of our vehicles looking for bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines. A dangerous job. But through all of this, I learned to thrive in the face of great fear and stress and suffering. Came back though, and that was kind of the toughest battle I fought was after coming back home. Lost a friend to the war, you know, as you mentioned, struggled with PTSD, depression, heavy drinking, was on the cusp of suicide. I mean, one morning after five days of binge drinking was seconds away from slitting my wrists. And that was the trigger that began my slow, painful rocky climb out of the abyss. It certainly wasn't a smooth one, as you well know. I broke my sobriety multiple times, fallen a lot, but kept rising back up and eventually found my peace through this ethos of fearvana. I wrote the book, which ultimately the essence of it is to help people combat the demonization of fear. Like fear is not the antithesis of nirvana. It can be an access point to it. And not just fear, but at a meta level, suffering of any kind is not a problem. Stress, suffering, uh, fear, guilt, adversity. We hear these words and think of them as bad, but they're not bad. They can be access points to the greatest bliss because we're all going to experience them anyway. So you might as well fall in love with them. And that led me to the ethos, to the work I do, and to ultimately now my expression of it by running ultra marathons and playing on these edges of the human condition in some of the most hostile environments on the planet. And also, I mean, I want to know, and it's very powerful, the framework that you do have, and it's one that interfaces with, I guess you could say a culture, at least in the West, that's gone very soft. Mm -hmm. Convenience foods, most people are overweight, we're looking for ways to automate or take out any kind of resistance point or energy and effort. And honestly, that's also kind of paired with this idea that we're trying to maximize our own personal 
uh, hedonic well-being in, mm-hmm. in many senses. Mm-hmm. We're trying to feel good, whereas yours seems like the antithesis energy of that. It's to find a purpose that is that is both for your greatest development, but also greater than you. Mm-hmm. The Black Hawk Down was a service mm-hmm. mentality, mm-hmm. and also understanding that to accomplish the mission, it requires facing suffering. So I want to ask you for the everyday moms and dads who are listening to this podcast episode, what are some ways that you see everyday people live out and embrace the Firvana ethos in the lifestyle, in their homes, in their families, in what they do with their spare time? Like, how does Firvana meet the road for the average person? You know, one of the ways, which is very much the ethos of what you do, is exercise teaches you how to suffer beautifully, right? It teaches you how to go to war with yourself and find something within to transcend that. Doing things like cold plunges, cold tubs. But one of the core things, which I think is not as well talked about, is stillness. I think mm-hmm. in my experience, you know, uh, that is the num- one of the greatest fears in the human condition. It's not a fear if you ask people, what are you scared of? People will say stillness. But Carl Jung once said, people will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own soul. And in my experience, mm-hmm. that could not be more true. And look at the world. Like we do everything to distract ourselves from ourselves. So practice being still. Like lock, as you know, I spent seven days in darkness. And then the second time I went and spent 10 days in a completely dark room, right? Like pitch dark, cannot see your hand in front of you darkness, just to be still mm-hmm. with myself. So do things like that. You don't have to go into extended darkness if you don't want to push, go that far, but lock yourself in a room for an hour, two hours, three hours, push that edge and go into places where you feel that discomfort, where you, where you challenge yourself and force yourself to have to go to that internal conflict within yourself, but do it when a place that's not that outside your realm of comfort, like if you're very comfortable exercising. So for example, for me, when, even when I was in the darkness, the set, especially the first time I was exercising in the darkness, but exercising is my comfort zone. Even though it's suffering, I thrive in that, you, you know, the kind of crazy shit I've done, mm-hmm. but like, so I, I actually set a rule for myself that I'm not going to allow myself to exercise because I was using it to escape the stillness. Mm-hmm. So find a place to do those hard things and you can get crazy adventurous. You don't have to go to Antarctica to do it. Like for example, when the pandemic first hit, a lot of people were like, oh, I can't go to gyms. I can't go to parks. I can't work out. So to inspire people, I ran 50 miles around a cul-de-sac. It was over a thousand loops running around this tiny ass cul-de-sac around my house. You don't need that much room to go suffer. Like that was one hell of an adventure, right? You don't mm-hmm. need to go to the edge of Antarctica to suffer, to suffer, to experience an adventure. Come up with unique games. Like what we do, whenever we go to your cabin, we go do death by burpees is the first thing we do. You know, we find mm-hmm. ways to suffer, suffer together. Not only does it build camaraderie, but you got to play on those edges to experience a new awakening, to experience a new enlightenment. Yeah, and I mean, that's something pretty unique about how you live in relation to even some of my close friends who are, also in great shape and also push themselves, but you intentionally build this in. And it seems like it's roughly every month, every other month, although you're doing daily training now for Antarctica, that you come up with some crazy scheme (laughs) of something you want to do. So like last, this past month, it was hiking, basically doing, the plan was like five to seven days of absolutely no food and then exercising every day. Not advised. I mean, Akshay is a professional sufferer. You should not go exercise like crazy and not eat. But like the point being is you you actually think and you plan these things in mm-hmm. and they give you the spirit of adventure. And mm-hmm. so maybe we can all invite that a little bit more, mm-hmm. especially on the weekends, right? Weekday, you have your money through Friday, but mm-hmm. you have an hour or two hours over the weekend to like do something. Mm-hmm. Stare at a wall, like you've stared at a wall for, mm-hmm. you know, an hour, not hours, not doing things. Mm-hmm. Like give us some, a couple other examples of some small kind of like sharpening challenges that people can spin their gears on. Yeah, it's like going on extended fasts. I mean, when I when I was my to celebrate my birthday last year, I did 10 hours of meditation and 10 hours of dragging two very very heavy tires 
uh, on 36 hours of no food, you know, over a 24 hour period. So doing things like that, coming up with unique challenges, as you mentioned, and again, I'm not saying everybody should do this, but last week or two weeks ago, I did a, a six day fast after five and a half days of no food. I went for a five hour hike in 102 degrees with 4,500 feet of elevation gain. Things got really bad. I was like nauseous, cramping, throwing up everywhere, lightheaded, dizzy. Uh, so I'm not necessarily saying that's, but like you said, I, I play on these edges a lot. So I was I was ready to go there, but extended fast, doing long cold, I've, you know, I've, I've done long cold dips in the middle of winter in Vermont, where I spent eight minutes in, in, in a cold river there when it was the middle of winter. So just finding, like you, you want to also want to gamify it, like make it playful, right? Find ways to, I mean, when you're in the depths of the pain cave, it's going to suck, but you make it playful. And another way to think about like ways to find the challenge is looking for ways to create disequilibrium in your life. So what I mean by that, in life, there's a series of dualities. And I know you may have talked about this, right? Like there's all kinds of dualities. There's life and death, masculine, feminine, light and dark, ego, humility, contentment, discontentment, pain, pleasure. And often we demonize one side of the duality, like pain is bad, the darkness is bad. If you look at the duality, stress mm -hmm. and recovery, stress is bad, discontentment is bad. But in to, to retain to spiritual awakening, spiritual enlightenment, you start to see as you play on these edges that no side is bad. Both of them can and actually must coexist. So what I do in my life at all times is I'm constantly looking for a duality that causes me friction and I go play on the other end, other edge of it. So to make this concrete, like, as you know, I thrive in the space of suffering. So I remember once many years ago, I was going for a run and I saw a sign that said 5K fun run. And I had visceral disgust at the idea of running for fun. Like you don't run for fun, you have to suffer. But that wasn't healthy. I noticed I was bringing in suffering in all areas of my life. So what I did was, if you look at the duality of suffering and play, right, the spectrum, you put that on a spectrum, seemingly two pol polar opposite forces. Now, and don't get caught up in the semantics of it. You can call it whatever you want, right? I use the word suffering and play. I started to go on the other edge and do playful things. Like when we were at the retreat, actually the retreat we first met in Hawaii. At first, when they would do the breaks and they would do like dancing and hula hoops, I would have nothing to do with that shit. I'd rather go in the back and do burpees. But then I was starting to go do things like that. Be playful, go for runs where I don't check the mileage, listen to fun music, dancing and singing while I'm driving in the car, right? Doing playful things. Now, I will always be somebody who leans toward the edge of suffering on that scale of suffering and play. But by going onto the edge of play, not only am I opening new doors that I've never accessed before, because if we keep doing what we've always done, we're going to keep getting more of what we've always gotten. Right. So I had to go somewhere to, to figure out not only what I don't know, but I start to realize like what I don't, because we all don't know what we don't know. Right. Like, mm -hmm. so I had to figure out, okay, here's new realms. Here's things I don't know. And then it, op it also just expands the experience of life. Cause you're, 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 you know, you're increasing the range of the human condition and, and the, the emotions mm -hmm. in which you get to play this game of life. But I'm, I'm bringing new tools to access in my arena. Like even now when I go tire dragging or doing these polar expeditions, many times I'm tapping into play. You know, so mm -hmm. I'm always looking for a duality. Even when I went to the darkness, yeah. look, if you look at the duality of control and surrender, I'm a giant control freak. My world is in my hands. So I was practicing surrender at every point, mm -hmm. like find a duality. And I'm happy to share this. We have a list of dualities that I constantly am evolving and building on. And I look for one that's causing me friction, causing me problems. Like another one I've helped clients with is ego and humility. We demonize ego as bad, but like I've, I've done this, I've seen people do this exercise where you sit in front of a partner and just brag for two minutes about how awesome you are. And you'll see people get so uncomfortable doing this. But here's the thing, especially <laughs> in my world to do like an Antarctic crossing, I have to believe I'm the hardest, toughest savage alive, right? Ego can coexist with humility. So I have the ego that I'm the baddest ass human being alive, but I have the humility to be a constant learner. 
So that's another duality. Like look for one and play on one edge and you'll open new doors into yourself that you've never opened before. I think that was a really valuable add into the ethos of Firvana because the first angle we kind of approached looking at it is push into things that make you physically uncomfortable. And obviously we have a physical big dimension of our experience. That's a good thing to do. Get some adventure, push yourself and everyone listening to this, if they're doing our fit father, fit mother workouts, you're, you're, you're facing that adversity willingly and you know how good it feels like on the other side. But like, I think the deeper cut here is this more meta awareness of we all have a natural disposition in our personality construction. And there are these dualities, which I want you to t speak about some of these next. And I want, as you do speak of that, about them, everyone to reflect, where do you fall in terms of like common dualities might be, uh, I guess, like orderliness versus messiness, uh, certainty versus uncertainty, yeah. things like this. And, and how can you intentionally create experiences in your life to play on the more uncomfortable aspect? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's awesome. I mean, like if you're someone who like hates when your kid's room is absolutely destroyed or messy or the kitchen looks like a certain way, it would be pretty Firvana to allow that to happen for a particular day and to really sit with that and feel with that and feel the okayness of that. And you can get back to the other the other cleaning up after the fact, but yeah. let's talk about the dualities and so people can reflect on these ranges of their experience and what they might want to lean into on the other sides. Yeah, you know, like one, I think some of the more, like the, I think one of the more important ones, at least in my experience, is the darkness and light, right? We've all mm -hmm. gone through hard times in life and we often, again, demonize that, right? We don't want to go into those spaces, but as Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And he also said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. So in those darkness, the pain that you've experienced, sit with it, play with it, engage it. So for example, as you know, I lost a very close friend of mine to the war, struggled with survivor's guilt for a long time. And everybody told me, don't feel guilty. Rationally, I get it, right? Bullets fly where they fly in war, bombs explode where they explode. You can't control it. But emotionally, it didn't change the fact that I was guilty. Now, the guilt wasn't the problem. This is another huge mistake is this demonization of emotions, right? The fact is there are no bad or good emotions. There are no bad or good experiences. They're only emotions and they're only experiences. It's up to us to decide what we do with them. So by engaging the darkness of my pain, of guilt, of, of this loss I experienced of my brother, right? I tapped into it, accepted the isness of the guilt, viewed it as an expression of love. And for a long time, what I did was I put a picture of my friend up on my wall and it said, this should have been you. Earn this life. My guilt, my dark, the darkness of the trauma I've experienced became a weapon I can access. And when you, when you, when you access it, when you bring it to the surface, you can now do something with it. So for example, when I did that 167 mile run across Liberia, it was like day four of the run. It was about a marathon a day, just under a marathon a day for a week. I had this aching shin, pain hit me in my shin. And I was, I stopped, it like literally knocked me off my feet. I stopped about 18 miles in, probably put some cream on it, massage it, it wasn't going away. So I started limping and walk, like battling the physical pain, the psychological pain, like I got three more days of this. And then I started running and just booking it. And the whole time while I was sprinting the last five miles of that day, I was saying things to myself, like remember Neil? That's my buddy who died. It should have been you that died out there. Earn this life. Suck it up. If you quit now, you deserve a coward's death. There are people suffering all around you. Liberia has been through a civil war, Ebola, poverty. You know, So people are suffering all around you. Suck it up. Earn this life. And saying these very dark things to myself, those five miles I ran were the fastest five miles I ran the entire trip. Now, I didn't talk to myself like that the whole time, but because I went there, I was able to access it and use the darkness as a force for good. 
as a force for power. But I also play on the edge of light, right? Like I'm also, you know, constantly grateful, incredible gratitude for life, finding the bliss, finding the beauty, seeing little things to appreciate in every single moment. But you have to play on those edges. I, I, like, and as once I remember I was working with a friend actually, who a client slash friend, she had gone through this horrific childhood trauma. And we had, we were, she was ready to go there when I asked her this question. And I asked her this question, what if you deserved what you went through? And she literally goes, whoa, why would you say you deserve this horrific, you know, childhood sexual trauma you went through? But here's, and, but like nobody would tell her that, right? No therapist would say you deserve it, but I knew she, she deserved it. Some part of her felt that she did. So I asked her, does some part of you feel like you deserve it? She said, yes. I said, does some part of you feel guilty for it? She said, yes. I said, good, go there, be with that. What does that mean about you? What does that mean about God? What does that mean about humanity? Journal on this, reflect on it, think about it. That night she sends me a text saying, fuck you, Akshay. Because she went into some dark spaces that night. Now, again, firstly, just want to qualify that she was ready to go here. We had done a lot of work because that if you ask that question and you're not ready to go there, it can be quite dark. But she was ready to go there. After the next morning, for the first time in 25 years, she shared with her husband what actually happened. You have to go through the darkness to come out the other side. And this is, again, just one duality. I'm always looking on a duality. So even now, for example, I'm playing on the duality of the mundane and the extreme. If you look at that two edges, right? Like I thrive on the extreme clearly. So I'm bringing more consciousness to sanctification of the mundane. As simple as when I'm doing the dishes, I'm bringing more awareness to it, consciousness to it. Even in my training, instead of just doing all these crazy challenges every month, for a little while, just doing consistent, regular training without some crazy shit that I plan every month, right? So looking for that. I actually have gone back to the duality of fun, fun and misery. Because again, I thrive on misery. So sometimes you'll find yourself going back to a duality you maybe previously worked on. And you don't get to a point where you just magically hit like, all right, checkbox, like I've hit this X, I'm golden. It's more just through self-awareness and reflection. All right, you know, I, I think I've attained a good spot in this one. Let me go find another one to play on. But that requires that reflection. Like one of my many mantras is stretch and reflect. Previously in my life, I just used to bounce from hard thing to hard thing to hard thing to hard thing, constantly stretching. Now I'm very conscious about stretching, reflecting. What's the lessons? What's the takeaways? What did I get from this? Then stretch, then reflect and the cyclical process of that. Really beautiful. Thank you. And I think even from that, I, I think people are going to be able to reflect on their own areas where they can stretch into. And I also can just really appreciate that you're living a life with a lot of range mm -hmm. by intentionally mm -hmm. going through this process of playing on the different ends of the duality, not labeling things as, as good or bad, mm -hmm. and also accepting what does show up naturally mm -hmm. based on your experiences that will say the hand of God, you know, created for you, Absolutely. like the, the death of Neil uh, and, and, and the guilt that you experience, like the embracing of that, the going through of it mm -hmm. is where you've experienced a lot of healing and power. Mm -hmm. I also want to act, uh, talk to you about this now kind of transition into Antarctica, but not first about what it entails and how you train for what will be the greatest uh, human accomplishment in, in endurance ever, ever performed. I want to talk about the mindset of something that you got into very deep last year and still is. And that was the idea of method acting. Mm -hmm. Many of us think of ourselves as like our personality. We almost like think of our personality construct as like ourselves, like, oh, I'm Anthony. I have these likes, these dislikes, like this kind of way. And then you started, you started realizing that Akshay couldn't get across the ice because Akshay's an ego construct that has certain limitations and fears. But like, what if 
You could become bigger than Akshay. What if Akshay is the awareness behind Akshay and that awareness could choose to put on a whole bunch of different kinds of masks for a situation? And that's like method acting. You started mm -hmm. studying that. So talk to us about some of the wisdom of method acting, what you uncovered, how you apply that in your training and life and how you yeah. have your clients do that as well. Yeah. So I went, yeah, I went deep into studying it, specifically Daniel Day-Lewis, greatest method actor of all time. One director said of Daniel Day-Lewis, I've never seen somebody come as close to complete obliteration of the self. And when you think about that, right, like Daniel Day-Lewis and great method actors, they dream, they think, they feel as the character, not as themselves. So this is what, to me, the application in personal growth was tremendous, right? So mm -hmm. I was starting this process, and now there's many avenues and aspects to how to embody this. One thing is like physically doing the thing of the character. So all method actors were like, when Daniel Lewis was studying, was preparing for Last of the Mohicans, he would go live in the wilderness for like weeks on end. You know, he learned how to build his own canoe. When he was preparing for uh, Gangs in New York and uh, playing the role Build a Butcher, he actually learned how to be a butcher. So embodying the physicality of it so it becomes like a muscle memory. And then recognizing, starting to get clear, what does the character need? You know, not you, but what does the character need in order to accomplish said goal? For an actor, there's like a script, so you have some sort of guidance on what the, what the role implies, right? And here, I'm creating my own role. So I have a sense of, okay, here's what the character needs. And then it demands isolation. This is a big reason why I went to the darkness the second time. You don't have to do it in that, that, in that, in that intense way, but it does demand some degree of isolation because the world around you is gonna see you as you as the construct that has been created around your identity, right? All the, all the things, the facets about who you are. So isolation allows you to kind of get mad. You have to get a little crazy, a little mad, a little feel a little off balance, because if you're not, then you're staying in that place of that construct of what you believe yourself to be. But in order to go, like the inherent nature of the edge, that it's off balance, it's an edge, right? So you are gonna feel off balance. Like I remember when I was doing this, especially really intensely, I woke up in a few days, I felt like I was off balance, literally falling off a cliff. So when I went into the darkness, I would walk back and forth, pacing on this yoga mat in the darkness, just allowing things to flow through. Because to surrender, you have to surrender into the character, right? And to do that, you have to have some sense of what the character is and then allow things to speak through you. And I said phrases in the darkness, I was speaking out loud to myself, had thoughts and feelings that I've never had before. Because I was, I had a sense of who I needed to be, and then I was surrendering to the character. And the really cool part of this process too is that when you do this, you start to release the attachment to the sense of identity you have about who you are and the judgments you have for yourself. So, for example, you know, at the time I was struggling with being lonely. You know, I wasn't in a relationship or anything like that, and. And I didn't want to admit that I felt lonely because in my mind it made me weak, right? Especially considering I'm about to go spend 110 days alone in Antarctica, so I can't feel lonely. It, like, I don't, I don't like that about myself, right? We all have these things, like, I don't want to admit this part of my identity. But when you method act into the character, it actually allows you to go deeper into, into those forces you don't want to really admit is there because you're not attached to them as your identity. They can be there, I can be there, but this is not who I am. This is just version of an Akshay that is not quote unquote real, right? The reality in which we engage is an illusion. So I'm going to create a character and I can use this stuff to step into the character. So it's, it was a really powerful process to let go of every sense of construct I have about my identity in order to create a new one. And that's why to me, like that fundamental question, you know, the existential question of who am I? The way I answer that question, and I think in my opinion, the one of the most accurate answers to that question is, I'm the creator of my own illusion. Everything about how we engage with reality from the simplest way, like when I see a white wall, 
at a young age, I was taught that's a white, that color is white, that wall, that thing that I'm seeing is a wall. That's a construct that's been embedded into me about what that thing is, right? But there's a imperceptible moment between pure experience and the constructs we attach onto reality. And those constructs mm -hmm. we attach create the illusion of our experience of life. But when you start to see it as an illusion, then you can recognize and create new constructs. And ultimately, you are the creator of your own illusion. So the process of method acting is to embody the illusion and choose which illusion you want to abide by, if that makes sense. And in your case, deploy them tac tactically in the situations Oriented. that exactly. a, certain, a certain method actor. So like, like let's get practical on this because someone might have listened to that. Like, that's fascinating. What do I, do I see we have the okay. ability to rise into the seat of the observer, see our own constructs, even adopt and embody other ones that have utility. So like, how does method acting show up for your success in training and your missions? But also, how does it show up for any of your clients or friends or in ways that you feel like people can embody this in everyday life? So first get clear, like what is the mission? What's the quote unquote role, right? The actor is, is playing a role. So let's say my case again, Antarctica, right? Crossing Antarctica. So, okay, this is what the role is. This is what the, the mission is, whatever your mission is. I'm writing a book or whatever, right? Once you get clear on the mission, then you start understanding and write, literally write this down. What are the virtues? What are the characteristics? What are the, the, the embodiments I need to complete this mission? If you don't know, find out. What are the go to people who have done this, right? Like I went, let's say I'd never been on a polar expedition before. I start doing smaller expeditions. I start learning from polar explorers, right? So now I'm finding out this is what it entails. Then you start stepping foot in the arena, just as the actor learns, just as Daniel Day Lewis becomes the butcher, learns how to be a butcher. Before, I mean, he didn't he didn't like immediately go from Daniel Day Lewis to the to the character playing the movie, right? He there's a place where he's building the character. That's why the great method actors take a long period of time to actually embody the character because they have to understand it first. So you get clear on the virtues, the characteristics. Then you step into the role in a small way. Now you you can embody it. All right, cool. So like in my case, tire dragging, for example, or doing smaller polar expeditions, right? Now I have a sense of what the character entails. Now I'm okay. This is, this is what, this is the mindset required. Now, when I bring it back into my reality, I can embody it. So in the simplest way, so for example, while driving, you know, my, my, my feet would be turned at a slight angle. So now I keep it straight because I'm thinking of myself cross-country skiing. A very, very simple way is to change your walk. Like think about your walk. A walk mm -hmm. is a very powerful way to kind of step into a character. You know, mm -hmm. think about the walk that, you, that you're doing. Step with the walk with more power if that's what the character demands, right? So thinking about what the character demands and, and practicing it in the smallest ways of your life. So even if I'm washing the dishes, what skills do I need during the washing the dishes to be a better polar explorer? I need presence. Let me bring pure presence to this. Instead of washing the dishes and, I don't know, putting on TV in the background, let me feel my hands washing the dishes, right? Why? Because it's oriented towards shaping the character. So first, you have to get clear on the character, the virtues needed, the skills needed, step into the arena a little bit, practice it, embody the physicality of it, and then you have to go into your emotions to bring the past emotions that, like I mentioned, the loneliness, the demons that I have going into all that inner work. Like great method actors like Daniel Lewis, they've confronted a lot of their own stuff. You know, because they're bringing that stuff to the character, right? I'm using my pain. So as a very concrete example, I believe, you know, when I was in Iraq, my vehicle drove over an active bomb. It didn't explode. My friends drove over a bomb. It exploded. He died. I was born with a great life to, to, to good parents. As a result, I'm blessed with a million times more opportunities than pe most people in the world. I've worked with post-conflict zones. I've worked with survivors of sex trafficking, former child soldiers, volunteered in a leper colony, worked with people in extreme poverty. And you've I've seen the darkness of the human condition. and I've seen all this. And just because I was born where I was born, I was blessed with a better life than most of these people. So I believe I owe a debt for this life. I owe a debt for this life. 
Now that construct, and I can be well aware that it's a construct, but that construct shapes the character. When I'm suffering out in Antarctica, I cannot tell you how incredibly valuable it is to go to that place. When I'm extremely miserable out in the Arctic, when I'm having a hard day, I will tell myself, pay your debts. You owe a debt for this life, suck it up, right? So that, I'm taking all my stuff, all my darkness, my pain, and I'm bringing it to the character. I'm bringing it to the needs of that character. But you have to play in the arena a little bit because you can sit here and listen to me, listen to a podcast, read a book. Nothing is going to give you true wisdom like stepping into the arena, whatever your arena is. So if it is writing a book, start writing, get a feel for it, learn from greater authors, put yourself in that in that identity, you know? And then as you develop it, it's the kind of duality of control and surrender. So control mm-hmm. to start entering the character and then surrender. And that's a very subtle thing, but you know what I'm talking about because you can you know the distinction, but it's a very subtle thing between I'm not using consciousness to to step into this identity. I'm actually, I have a sense of it. I've controlled it. And great method actors talk about this all the time. Like they don't know what will show up when they're when they're in the character, right? They, they've, they've done mm-hmm. enough control to create the yeah. sense of the character, but then they surrender. And then like when Daniel Day-Lewis is on a film and you're seeing him, he's not thinking about what is happening. He's responding as the character, not as Daniel Day-Lewis, right? It's a surrender to what the character will reveal. So it is a subtle thing, but when you play it, when you when you go into it, you'll know what that feels like. Like, I'm not thinking this. I'm not consciously processing this. I'm just surrendering and seeing what will be revealed. But that requires going still again. Like to make it practical, spend time in stillness, spend time in isolation, allow yourself to surrender to have something be revealed. Because only in silence can you really start to hear. And you got to create yeah, that silence. Because you have that space for that. And I also think a relevant reflection question on top of that is for everyone listening, like what are the main areas and roles that you're playing in your life? Yeah. Certainly how you show up in maybe like a mission. Maybe you have a big mission like Akshay or something, a business you want to start, a business you're running, raising your kids, um, you know, whatever it is you do for vocation. You probably have a role that you play with a significant other or key relationship in your life. You have a role that you play with in your fitness and how you show up into the gym or in your workouts. So like perhaps you can take a little bit of this wisdom that Akshay naturally is bringing to the extreme because to go and do the things that he's looking to do, it requires taking this up to as high of the, as the RPMs can go. But each of us, I think, can use even just like the, the nature of this to apply into our different roles and, and ask how would the best lover show up in the situation? How would the best parent show up in the situation? How would the best boss or employee show up in the situation? And then you can work on embodying those things. And in the process, as you say, this is very much tied to our spirituality because it's also having us analyze our own patterns, create healing, mm-hmm. gain more clarity, mm-hmm. choose to act differently. And so it's getting us in that more like meta framework yeah. where we're no longer ensconced into our patterns yeah. we can see above them and choose and create consciously so that's awesome now this is a turn where i want to spend the back part of this conversation actually talking about the fascinating journey of what it takes to ski across antarctica so please give us like a sense of the scope of like what this is like which we're calling it the great soul crossing is what you call this, Mm -hmm. this mission to ski 110 days across Antarctica, lay out the geography, lay out a little bit of the history of what's been done in this domain. And then I want to get into what it takes to actually execute this training. What are the main areas that you need to focus on? And also what you have already experienced in these polar environments and prep for this. Yeah. So the journey itself, I'll be dragging a 400 pound sled for 110 days, 1,700 miles from one coast of Antarctica to the South Pole to the other coast of Antarctica. This has never been done before. People have crossed Antarctica with kites 
or with dogs, as in using wind power or using dogs. But to do it purely man hauling, I'll be dragging all my own supplies for 110 days worth of food, of fuel, and portions of the journey. I will geographically be one of the most isolated human beings on earth. And Antarctica <laughs> is one of the most savage, unforgiving environments on the planet. We're talking minus 40 degrees, hurricane force winds, a polar storm. I've been blessed to experience a great deal in life. A polar storm is one of the most unforgiving, hostile places I've ever experienced. And I'll be doing this for 110 days, dragging that sled through the ice in pure monotony, right? Many of most of the journey, you're doing this in pure, empty, white nothingness. So there's no stimuli to engage you. Unlike mountain climbing, for example, people often think of it compared to Everest, but unlike mountain climbing, and I've done a lot of mountain climbing as well, as you go up and down the mountain, the terrain changes, the views change, the dynamic, it's dynamic. In polar exploration, it's just pure monotony, doing the same damn thing over and over and over and over again for 110 days. Hey, it's Dr. Ray. I want to quickly pause this episode to thank you for listening to this Fit Father podcast. I am just blown away at how amazing this podcast has become. I had no idea when I started FFP around 10 years ago that it would grow into such an impactful mission. And I want to let you know that I am so grateful to be connected to you in this lifetime and on behalf of me and my entire team, we are so grateful to be in your life, helping you get and stay healthier for your family. That's what I want to share. Just some gratitude from my heart to yours. Let's get back to today's episode. Again, so people get a sense of it. I mean, it'll vary based off on the terrain because sometimes there's more elevation gains, mm -hmm. sometimes there's mm -hmm. more flats, and but it's roughly skiing for like 10, 10 yeah. hours a day. Yeah, 10, 12. I, I'm... I'm Almost certain it'll take at least 12 hours a day to just to cover the sheer distance. There's a reason this has been not, never done before. Many people, many explorers consider it to be impossible. The head expedition manager at Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions that manages expeditions for all modern expeditions in history, he has said anyone who tries this will probably fail. And most people will break way before 100 days. Beyond being the first ever crossing of the continent, it'll be the longest solo journey in history, 110 days being completely alone, both in terms of distance as well as time on ice. <laughs> That's a pretty crazy thing to say. And so people get a scope of like how much it takes to do this. What's the financial investment required to pull this off? So it is $750,000 to pull this off. So it's quite a steep thing just because you're going to some of the most remote regions of the world. The flight from Union, Gla Union Glacier Base Camp in Antarctica to Bay of Wales, the other end where I'm starting, that alone is a two hundred to $250,000 flight. It's like multiple fuel stops. You're, I mean, again, just, you know, it's not just like one a commercial flight, right? You're flying these tiny little planes, multiple fuel stops. You're, they have to set up a, a crew on, on standby for this journey because there'll be a doctor, a support team, a pilot waiting at base camp while I'm out there doing this. So just to manage this and, and just the flight to Antarctica alone is 60, another 60 plus thousand dollars, right? Just the nature of the beast of doing this, it, it's quite an expensive feat. And so far I've self-funded all my previous expeditions. I was in Antarctica a year and a half ago, as you know, lost two fingers to frostbite. Um, and been in the Arctic and self-funding all the expeditions as well as the documentary that we're telling around this story. But now I'm uh, fairly stretched thin and looking for as, as much support as possible to, to make this journey possible. Yeah. And like, where can people go if they want to learn more about the logistics of the journey and as well as if they do want to support and they're inspired by this? Greatsoulcrossing.com. That's great, S-O-U-L, soulcrossing.com. And the whole mission okay. is just to also, yeah, to inspire. Everybody's got their own polar storm. Everybody's got their own Antarctica to cross. And because I get to go play so far and on the edge, I open doors in the human soul that aren't otherwise opened. And so my responsibility, that way I pay off this debt, is to bring those wisdom back and to, to share it. So I think it'll not just be about me, but we're going to expand the human consciousness through this. It's like the four-minute mile, right? Like these stories change the trajectory of the human condition. And I, I think this will mm -hmm. we will do that through this.
and and in this process of training, you've paid you've paid quite a few types of prices. But one is two years ago you had ten fingers, <laughs> and now you don't have ten fingers anymore. Like, let's talk about some of the story of frostbite and mm-hmm. what it's been like in terms of just the sheer commitment of experiencing the consequences of those environments and just what can happen, even if it feels like it's like not exactly in your control. And then also what you did recently in relation to making sure this upcoming journey is going to be successful. Yeah. So yeah, as, as you know, I got two fr- a frostbite on two of my fingers. Very, very bad. They were black zombie-like fingers. You were helping me take care of them when I returned from Antarctica, wrapping the fingers. And it was a seven-month journey of just watching these black fingers heal, go through moments of pain that would even wake me up from sleep, you know, wake me up at night. Uh, and here's the thing too, like I didn't do anything wrong in Antarctica. I wasn't walking around with no gloves, but I have a blood disorder that transports about 25% less oxygen through my body. Less oxygen to the extremities in a cold environment is less than ideal. So although now like I, I, I'm doing things to be even more careful, like I just returned from the Arctic where it was minus 37 degrees and I'm, I'm better, I'm doing things to be even more careful, but doing things out there is hard to do. Everything is hard to do because you have to wear gloves because it's so cold. So anyway, I got frostbite. One finger was black. The tip of it was like black and it had to go. It had to be surgically removed. The other finger, the one on my left middle finger, it recovered fully. It was a full finger. But the problem is once you get frostbite, you're always more prone to frostbite. So when I was in the Arctic just a few months ago, the tip of that left middle finger was getting colder much easier than the rest of my fingers. So I made a a bold decision to prophylactically remove that tip of that finger because I felt like it would be a liability for a 110 day journey across Antarctica. Like imagine I'm 60 days in, I'm hitting the distance I need to hit. But when you're at that time, you're now at the South Pole, which is at about 9,000 plus feet elevation. It's incredibly cold, minus 40 degrees. And if I get frostbite on this finger that for the rest of my life will be more prone to frostbite and the expedition over is over, that would be devastating to me. So when I was in India, I, ha- I met a bunch of doctors and the doctors refused to cut it off. The doctor said, it's a good finger. We can't ethically cut it off. You know, and I had to fight the doctors. I told him the thing and the doctor kept saying, you know, this is a finger. Why do you want to lose it? And I said, doctor, I don't think you understand. The mission to me is more important than a tip of my finger. I'm not the tip of my finger. You know, that's not who I am. Who cares? Like it's functionally, it's barely noticeable. But the thing that tipped the scale in my favor that got the doctor to agree to do it was my mom's support. My mom said, I need you to cut off my son's finger. <laughs> you know, what kind of mom would say cut off my son's finger unless there's a really good reason, but she understood that this is what, it was a huge liability. I have no regrets. I even reached out to you for counsel and I think you agreed that like this would, like for the rest of my life, even I met multiple doctors who said for the rest of your life, this finger will be more prone to frostbite. I mean, multiple doctors said their advice was just don't do cold weather expeditions anymore. That wasn't an option to me. <laughs> That's not an option. So as a liability, I cut it off. And um, I'm just one step closer to being ready to actually pull off this crossing. That's what it, if that's what it think, takes. That's what it takes. I, I think it's really nice to share that story. And, and you know, the times when you and I have gone to dinner, it's really fun for me to parade you around <laughs> and like, hey, look at this guy's finger, especially when it was actually like literally falling black off. You could crazy. see like the bone and it was all <laughs> exactly. black. And like, he'd tap it on the table at dinner and it would sound like, like exactly like what a bone would feel like. It was fascinating. It's so um, crazy. But I guess it, it does, it is a powerful representation of like the price that you're willing to pay for your dreams. And I think you serve as like a mirror for all of us especially those of us that have have excuses like that are more in the tune of, I don't have time to exercise, which means I don't really want to wake up 45 minutes earlier because that price is too big for me Mm -hmm. um, right now. And so that's just an example, but I think we all have to pay some kind of price 
to cross the to toll, the toll to cross into the, the unknown or the place that our soul is calling us. And oftentimes that price is more dedication, more commitment, more feeling, investment of some sort of energy, time, money, and sometimes even body parts in your unique situation. Indeed. So, I mean, that's something. I want to talk about the, what, what, like a day in the life of like what it's going to be like when you're skiing. So let's say it's day 15 in your journey. What does day 15 actually look like for you? Run us through like a whole day yeah. on, the Arct- on, on the Arctic ice. So once you wake up, first thing you do, uh, boil boil snow for water, heat up water to eat breakfast. It takes about between waking up and starting the day and very efficient. And you're inside of a tent. Yes, sorry. Just so everyone I'm gets the picture. Yeah. I'm inside of a tent. Sometimes I forget that it's, to me, just feels so normal. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I'm inside of a tent in very cold conditions. I've come out of my sleeping bag, which is honestly in all my polar trips that waking up in the morning is one of the hardest parts of the day because you're almost always under-recovered, especially like day 15. You're not, you're, you're pushing so hard every day. You're never getting a full recovery, right? Even at eight hours of sleep. And so you wake up and you're a little knackered. And if it's cold outside, especially now you're like, shit, I got it. And it's when the wind is hammering the tent, it sounds like the inside of a washing machine. So now you know you have to get out there in this. So I boil some snow, eat some breakfast, start packing up my stuff inside the tent, like my sleeping bag, my stove, my uh, my my bag of, of, of food, electronics. And then I pack up my tent in, in a sled. I'll be dragging two sleds for this journey because it's such a big journey. And then I start skiing. So I start skiing for first shift is 90 minutes. And then I take a very quick three to five minute break where I stop quickly to st- drink some water, pee if I need to, stuff food in my mouth. And my food is macadamia nuts and chocolates. And you can't, like, and there's another thing, it's like you can't stick your hand in the bag to grab food because I'll often be wearing mittens or very, very thick gloves. So I've created a ladle and I have a ladle that I just stuff food into my mouth as like as much as possible. And then I start skiing and I'm chewing that food while I'm skiing. Because when you stop, you get cold quickly. Not to mention the more time I stop, the less time I'm covering distance. So we're talking a three to five minute break and then I ski. And then I'll be doing 75 minute chunks of skiing with three to five minute breaks every 75 minutes. Doing that for about 12 hours a day, stopping at the stopping at the end of that day and now setting up camp. So like sometimes imagine a hurricane force wind hammering you and I've experienced this. You got to set up your tent. If you lose your tent, you're dead, right? So your tent has to be on point. You set up your tent, you get in your tent and now I've set up my sleeping bag, set up my tent and I start boiling snow for water again. And boiling, that takes a little bit of time in the evening, anywhere from two to three hours. You boil snow because you finished all this water you've drank for the day. Then eat my dinner, which is a freeze-dried meal with butter powder in it. And uh, and then as quickly as possible, go to sleep. Because especially a journey like this, sometimes if I've done shorter journeys, you can spend less time skiing and more time in the tent to re- relax. But on this journey, it's so big, the distance I need to cover, I need to be out there covering distance as much as possible. So 12 hours a day, three to four hours of tent time, trying to get eight hours of sleep. If towards the end, I'm, I, I need to cut into sleep to cover more distance, that's what I'll have to do. And um, and then repeat, rinse and repeat, and doing this literally every day. The greatest, cha- one of the biggest challenges is just the mental monotony of doing this in empty white nothingness. Because unlike mm-hmm. mountaineering, like when I was climbing in Denali, you know, you're on a very thin ridge line with a thousand foot drop on each side. The environment forces you into flow. You don't, have, you, yeah. you can't be thinking about other stuff. Your mind is right there on the next step. But in polar travel, it's just flat white nothingness. So your mind wanders. I've had moments where an hour can feel like a freaking lifetime, you know. And mm-hmm. you have to navigate that. That's one of the 
daunting elements of it, but one of the also more beautiful elements to it that draws me to it. Like this is not as dangerous as mountain climbing, but it's a lot more suffering, a lot more physical, mm-hmm. mental, and spiritual suffering, which to me is the draw. Not inherently the suffering, it's the suffering is the means, it's not the purpose. The purpose is the transcendence. It's where the suffering takes you. Like the greater the dragon, the greater the treasure on the other side of it. And out there, I'll be battling some pretty freaking big dra- dragons. Yeah, that's it's it's like probably hard for someone listening to this who knows how hard a 45 minute to one hour workout is to even conceive of that amount of exercise tolerance. So it does beg the question is like, how does one even train for this? Um, And what's your training been like? Please describe that. So the core training for polar travel is tire dragging, where I drag either these one or two very, very heavy tires for freaking hours on end around uh, Arizona summer in like 110 degrees. You've experienced the tires. It is quite brutal. It is a pretty brutal, brutal form of training. So tire dragging is the core form of training. And then also like I've done a lot, do a lot of hiking, do a lot of strength work. I'm very blessed with our great friends we have here that who have helped me and helped me train. So doing a lot of strength work because the polar polar exploration is a unique beast that you need to train endurance to be able to go 12 hours a day. You need to train strength to drag that very, very heavy sled. And you need to do it all while you're fat. None of those three things go well together, right? But I need weight because I'll be even even eating 6,200 calories a day, I'll be burning eight to 10,000. So I'm gonna lose a ton of weight out there. I'm very, I'm already yeah. know, like I'll come back in terrible shape, mentally, physically, like lost a ton of weight. Like from, from being like, I, you're very fit, but you have, you definitely have like a nice layer of body fat on. You're yep. going to be even fatter when you're ready to roll. Yep. And that's the goal again, yep. stored calories for the later, mm-hmm. but you'll come back and you can probably tell some stories of some other polar explorers on the other expeditions. You're literally starving to death at the end of this yep. thing. These people come back absolutely emaciated. Exactly. Emaciated. Sometimes often they say that because you you're in an empty white nothingness with zero stimuli that sometimes it, it, many polar explorers come back and they're kind of semi blind for weeks on end because they're eyes have to readjust to seeing colors, to seeing contrast. Out there, there is no contrast, just literally empty white nothingness. So I'll be emaciated, probably barely able to see, can't stand mentally. Now just imagine 110 days completely alone, not seeing another human being. I mean, even when I was 10 days alone in the Arctic and I came into a crowded restaurant after that, I was kind of anxious, anxiety, you know? So dealing with that again after 110 days of solitude, it's gonna be quite an adjustment just coming back. That, that level of solitude is pushing to the edge. I mean, it's it'll be the longest solo polar expedition in history as well. So that's why I do things like spending time, 10 days in darkness as mental training. One of the other things, the reason I did that fast, you know, to, cause one, the, like I'm looking for every mental weapon because the biggest part of this is going to be the mental battle. Of course it's physical, mm-hmm. but the mental battle of dealing with that kind of isolation, the stillness, the monotony. So I'm always looking for what new weapons can I access in my mental arsenal? So, which is why when I did that fast of seven, six days of no food training, 17 hours during that six days, I wanted to combine a visceral experience of physical starvation and suffering with what I was also doing, which was consciously engaging and inducing trauma as a mechanism for post-traumatic growth. Now, now to be clear, I wouldn't recommend this for many people because I was ready to go there because I've done a lot of work to heal past trauma. This is a little different than healing past trauma. This is actually creating new trauma. Like I was literally inducing flash, like I would have flashbacks and nightmares at night. You know, so I was creating conscious trauma. Like one, the way I was doing it, like for me, my quote unquote flavor of trauma is very war related. So I was watching a lot of scenes from war movies, especially before going to bed. Every night during that week, I was crying myself to sleep. 
I was listening to music related to war scenes. I was activating my survivor's guilt, looking at pictures of my friend that I lost in the war and activating it. Because also to be clear, like we've talked about earlier, when you recognize reality as an illusion, you can see a movie and and remove the the quote unquote fourth wall of seeing it as a movie because I can embed myself into that as real because I've, I've, I've separated that, that, that illusion of this is just a movie, right? When you, when you train in the space of seeing all the constructs and how we engage with that. So by doing that, I was now giving myself weapons to access when I needed in, in the Arctic and then in the Antarctic as well. Um, as in like, remember the debt you owe, remember all these people who've died, earn this life, go harder. But, and to be clear that the week after that, because I'd gone so dark into the intense, I was playing on the edge of light. So that whole following week, I was singing, I was listening to fun music. I was watching South Park. I was laughing, stand up comedy, right? Like even while tire dragging, I was listening to super fun music and playing on the edge of light. So I'm giving myself every mental tool in the arsenal I can access when I'm out there. Some days I'll need to be having fun, thinking about light, listening to fun music. Some days I'll need to think about the debt I owe and the amount of people that have suffered just so we get to live this life that we lived, like the people who died in World War II, right? So all of those mental tools I'm giving myself so when I when I need it, I'll have those places to go. Nice. I mean, absolutely powerful. And uh, I mean, I, th- I always find it fascinating you know, cause the first thing I think about is like the idea of exercising 12, 12 hours a day for 110 days. And like you being in those environments, you're more concerned about the mental aspect. And like, that's just, it's just telling, I mean, you have the more direct experience. And so the exercise you're doing is several hours per day, tailored tire dragging. I know you do a lot of strength training, obviously the cardio training, but not a lot of running. Cause you're trying to translate directly into um, the the motion of the cross country skiing, so exactly. you're very training specific for that. Um, let's talk about nutrition because it's it, and this is something that you and I worked a lot to kind of like co create your nutrition plan, and it's kind of fascinating because one of the big things about your nutrition is you wanted to get as many calories you can in the most weight efficient way possible, while also giving the right kinds of fuels in relation to the kind of training zones you're going to be in. Yeah. So prioritizing certain amount of fats, certain amount of carbs, and getting it all to fit in like the the lightest package possible that also tastes decent enough yes. that you have some little sliver of joy, <laughs> like your little piece of chocolate every day, I guess. So let's talk about the nutrition and like what the process was of coming up with that, what you learned and, you know, all that. It was a rigorous month long back and forth process of finding, like, for example, you know, when I was mapping out foods and something you don't think about in the normal world, because why would you? But let's say, for example, a piece of cheese has 10 grams worth of protein, fats and carbs. To get that 10 grams, it might be 20 grams for that serving because there's a lot of water weight. So while planning this, I was I realized that many foods are not super weight efficient. So I looked at all the foods that I've taken, like on previous expeditions, I've taken cheese and salami. No big deal for a shorter expedition where weight's not as conscious. This expedition, it matters, right? And many foods, if they don't, if they didn't have a 90% better ratio of macro weight, meaning weight of protein, fats, and carbs to actual weight for that serving, I would remove it. You know, looking at cal- looking at foods that have the highest amount of calories per 100 grams, going back and forth, and then finding also taste tests, because certain things I was like, I'm not doing this for 110 days, that sucks. So, yeah. you know, so then taste testing everything. With your help, we came up with the numbers. I believe what we, yeah, it's written on my Excel spreadsheet. We got 150 mm-hmm. grams of protein, 300 grams of carbs, and 550 grams of fats. Now, I remember you, we were talking about with carbs, because if I, especially if I go up into zones, or higher heart rate zones, especially when I'm, when I'm going uphill to get to the plateau in the South Pole, I will need those carbs, right? As you pointed mm-hmm. out to me. So I needed to increase carbs because originally we were looking at reducing that. So every time we change the numbers, changing the food 
quantity to get hit those numbers and finding the taste. So what we came up with finally after, again, this was quite a rigorous process of month long, months long, and then taste testing, putting it to the use, going to the Arctic, experimenting with it, is freeze-dried food for breakfast and dinner with butter powder mixed into it. Even that, butter powder is more weight efficient than butter, slightly, but it all matters. I mean, to get to, to, to illustrate how crazy I am with weight efficiency, I'm cutting tags off my shirts. I've cut my toothbrush yeah. in half. So I save a few grams there, right? I'm all kinds of things like that. Everywhere, every little detail, how can I save weight on the sled? And so with the food, butter powder, and then part of it, I'll be drinking straight oil, like 20, 30 grams of just straight oil because oil is the most yeah. efficient thing. It's just straight 100% calories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the go will be uh, will be macadamia nuts and chocolates. And our mutual friend, Trent, has helped create a custom-made supplement for me for the ice with just a beast of a supplement. It's got like 90 insane ingredients in it that will help provide the micronutrients because it's not exactly like a well-rounded healthy diet, right? So uh, mm-hmm. it'll provide all the micronutrients to help sustain me and keep that energy uh, going for the 110 days. So right now I've gotten 6,700 calories to weigh 1.1 kilos. And just to give context, that's actually insanely weight efficient. All my Polar Explorer friends were like, dude, that's more weight efficient than what we've been doing for the last 10 years. So it was ruthless. We have, we have the most advanced, I mean, I'll we use do. the word we being a part no, of your team, but this is the most do. advanced like nutrition plan that's ever been deployed in a polar exploring environment, 100%. which is like, which is kind of cool, even <laughs> it in really itself. Is. It you know? totally is. Like we've gotten, we went deep into this, lots of work to create this, but what I'm doing, and it's a calculated risk, but for the first 50 days of the expedition, I'm going to reduce the calories. So instead of 6,700 to weigh 1.1, I'm going to go to like 6,200 and try to get it one kilo because if I get hit with soft snow on the ice shelf, I mean, that just that that sled weight is so much weight. Like I when I was in Antarctica last time, we were dragging just 18 days worth of food and a lot of other stuff. It wasn't super weight efficient because I actually intentionally wanted more weight. And when we hit soft snow, man, it is work. Like I can't. How heavy was your sled when it was when it was an eighteen day trip? I'm not sure because I didn't weigh it. Uh, but I'm ex- ex- uh, exp- uh, estimating my Antarctica sled, and this was not random estimation. This is like taking into account everything, and to be about four hundred kilos. And we had two custom made sleds made for this. Like they're sitting there, eleven thousand dollars for two custom made sleds. So everything is just ruthlessly planned to the minute detail. You meant four hundred pounds, right? Not four hundred kilos. Four hundred pounds, two hundred kilos. Like little under yeah, okay, kilos, okay. 180 kilos. That's what I'm estimating. Yeah, uh, is is just based on all this and and I mean, dude, I'm so weight cutting. Like I'm not. I'm, I'll be wearing the same shirt and the same like long johns, the same for the entire 110 days. Needless to say, I'll be quite stinky after. But I'm not taking extra clothing layers just to save weight. You know, so all of it, mm-hmm. like just to to because I mean, when when I especially when I first start dragging that heavy sled for 10, 12 hours a day, it is brutal. And like in Antarctica, there's no easy days. There's just less hard days. So every day is just like incredibly, incredibly, incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. And as the sled gets lighter and you eat more food, you're also kind of being depleted as well. Exactly. Through just cumulative fatigue as well as losing body fat. Exactly. It's fat. It's just like a fascinating thing. Um, you know, yeah. fascinating from the vantage point of you're really excited to do it <laughs> and we can sit here and like look at the details. Yeah. Um, I mean, literally Steve it, from the yeah. guy who manages ALE said that any, most people will fail before 110 days. The exact words, I literally had this conversation with him uh, yesterday because uh, about this and he said, it's enough to flatten most people. Most people will run out before 100 days and almost everyone will quit. <laughs> and that's most people, most people he's talking about are most people who do polar exploration. Exactly. which is like already a pretty unique Super subset niche. of of, Super of humans that want to like <laughs> basically suffer and then do things that haven't been done before. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So powerful. I want to ask you kind of like in the closing part of our conversation, like again, to kind of like reiterate or share anything that you've been as unsaid about what you want this journey to represent and maybe the message that you kind of want to bring to the world, having not done this expedition yet, but having learned everything you have up to this point, like give us another capstone, even if it's kind of going back to some of the themes that we have here, but yeah. I, I think it's worthy now that we know the specifics of what you're trying to accomplish yeah. to hear your message again. Yeah. I guess to summarize, you know, I think the greatest barrier, the greatest, one of the greatest problems in the, in the human condition is our negative relationship to any kind of suffering. And it's this belief that mental well-being and mental health is a tensionless state, a state without stress, without anxiety. It's a state of homeostasis, a state of equilibrium. That is one of the fundamental problems in the human condition. You know, inner peace is not the absence of chaos or conflict. It's the acceptance of them. Or as I also like to say, happiness is not the elimination of sadness. Happiness is the ability to find the gift in sadness. So why I play on these edges, I mean, not only does it dial the volume of life up to an 11, I mean, dude, when I take a hot shower every day right now, it means the world to me because I know it's going to be gone. Every day I'm sitting outside looking at the night sky and I can't tell you the level of gratitude I feel because I know in Antarctica, we don't get night skies, it's 24 hours daylight and night sky and sunset sunrises are one of my favorite times. So point is to say, that's why, you know, we were talking about the dualities. Like I call it creating deliberate disequilibrium, deliberate disequilibrium, play on that edge. If you want to know what food really tastes like and the beauty of it, fast, you will appreciate a food so much more. Like one of the most profound moments of my life was when I came out of the darkness retreat and when I saw the world with those eyes, the way the light look, I remember feeling this deep sense of gratitude for all the suffering I've ever experienced in my life because I realized in a very visceral way I could not have seen the luminosity of the light, the brightness of the light, the awe-inspiring power of the light had I not just spent seven days in the dark. And so you cannot mm -hmm. really know the power of the light unless you've first been in the dark. So the point is embrace the chaos of life and don't even just embrace it, seek it, find a new edge. And it makes you appreciate the gratitude of all of it, man. Like the gratitude at which you will live your life when you go play on the edges. And you know, man, you've seen me like it, it's a result of doing this. It doesn't just mean I appreciate the, the the light. I even appreciate when I suffer. Like when I was in Antarctica, I would text you and I missed the people I love. I missed you. I missed my friends. I missed my family. And it wasn't like missing as in I want to come back home. It was gratitude to Antarctica that I get to feel this way, you know? Mm -hmm. So play on those edges and it will dial up the intensity and the rapture of being alive in a way that you can't fathom. Akshay Nanavati, what a way to like... Just be here, man, and share a message that I know is going to, if this message resonates with you, that's awesome. Go forth and suffer. If this message makes you uncomfortable, I'm sure Akshay would say that is also perfect. Lean into that. You're welcome for the suffering and even any of the mental discomfort. And I think it's just so cool that you're out there doing this. And again, great is it the Great Soul Crossing or greatsoulcrossing.com where they can find the website? And if they want to donate as well to support, I know you would appreciate that too. Yes, Great Soul Crossing, not the greatsoulcrossing.com. And there's a bunch of different like rewards for different donation tiers and stuff like that. So cool, man. Uh, thank you so much for being thank on you, here. Brother. And, and like on the other side of your journey, we will have you back, um, among other things, to to share the deep, deep lessons that you will have. And in the meantime, happy training, my bro. Thank you for inspiring us and being a champion of this work. And I appreciate you coming on with our community today. Thank you, brother. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Fit Father Project podcast. If you love what you heard, please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. 
It really helps spread this show to more men who need this valuable info. To watch full video episodes of this podcast and other motivational videos to inspire your training and more, visit our Fit Father Project YouTube channel. It's free and everything's made for busy guys over 40 like you. Visit youtube.com forward slash Fit Father Project to get access to our entire video library. And finally, if you or someone in your life is interested in becoming a fit father or needs help losing weight, building muscle, and living healthier after age 40, then visit fitfatherproject.com where you can see our proven programs, supplement line for guys 40 plus, and free meal plan and workouts to get you started. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi signing off. I'll see you in the next episode.